From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Co-hosting with me today is Marcus Shera. And joining us once again to continue our conversation from last week is Dr. Pete Betke. Uh, He's a professor here. He's also at the Mercatus Center. And we were talking about the history of GMU Econ. So this is part two. So you're kind of, if you're if you're listening to this episode, you're jumping in, in the middle of a conversation. I'd recommend you go back to last week's and listen to that one uh, to figure out uh, where we are. So, uh, Dr. Becky, thank you so much for being back with us again. Uh, I will. Uh, I'll start off with uh, asking you about how uh, Mason professors have have known each other because uh, uh, many Mason professors knew each other from their younger years in IHS programs. Uh, How much do those personal bonds uh, make a difference in a professional and scholarly setting? Well, I think that um, it's important to understand that in all uh, intellectual life uh, or even any walk of life where you're – there's a a very kind of competitive filter – that weeds a lot of people out and there's only like a residue that remains mm-hmm. um, that people develop pretty close bonds uh, in the in the process of doing that because they, you know how many people are interested in economics to begin with how many people are interested in uh, going to graduate school in economics to begin with how many people are interested when they're in graduate school of economics becoming college professors in economics how many of those college professors care about publishing papers in journals or writing books you know mm-hmm. and so it's a winnowing out process um, throughout that whole thing so you develop bonds with other people that share that interest with you and they become like compatriots and sometimes very deep personal friends right and so, um, you know, in my own case, for example, besides going to Grove City College um, and in, while I was at Grove City College, meeting people like Sandy Akita, who was older than me, um, or uh, people like Alex Chafwin, who was older than me, or people like Matt Kibbe, who were younger than me, that I've known since I was 19, 20 years old. Um, and and followed their careers and stuff. You know, you just go through the process. You have a shared interest and then you have divergent journeys but you have this shared background still um and then other people as uh, you go through the process and you meet them at conferences or you meet them at programs like seminars or conferences that people run and you get to know them and they share the same interests with you um you debate with them you argue with them and so it's like dan Klein and Tyler Cowan, I met, you know, very early on mm-hmm. in my academic career. Because you're all from New Jersey, right? Yeah, but we didn't, yeah. like, Tyler and Dan knew each other from growing up. Uh-huh. I met them, you know, ironically, in Virginia, oh. you know, from, <laughs> even though I'm from New Jersey. Uh-huh. Um, and um, <clears throat> because of that, you know, I met them when I was, uh, Ty- you know, Tyler and Dan. So Tyler was a phenom from a very early age. Mm-hmm. And so he was extremely impressive. And I was a student learning. And so when I met Tyler, it was someone that like, even to this day, I mean, I don't, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm kind of a fanboy. Like I can't, I'm in awe of what he's able to do and how he's able to communicate and the audiences that he can reach and everything like that. But I was that way with him on just sheer intellectual, you know, uh, like brain power. I remember, you know, the, the, probably the first time I ever met him, uh, I was like, he was he was he was at a seminar and 
Lockman was there and, and uh, Lavoie and some other ones. And he like stood out among the crowd, even with those guys in the room. And I was like, whoa, okay. So this guy's like a wizard, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and so, and Dan was like that too. So I, when I first met Dan, uh, you know, I, I was, they, they were people I wanted to aspire to be like. And so as a result of that, I asked them questions, you know, I was um, uh, like, what are you reading? You know, who do you find? And that kind of served as the basis of our communication with each other for probably the first decade of our lives. We would I was teaching at New York and Dan was teaching in California and Tyler was in California and then here. And we would run into each other at the AEA meetings or something. We'd have meals together. And then, you know, we ask questions like, you know, well, who have you been reading lately? And, you know, who do you find doing interesting work and all that kind of stuff? And so they became a constant source and those kind of relationships. And I think it. If you look, there's um, there's a number of those kind of relationships. I'm not the only one that has it. I mean, Don Boudreau, again, was a junior professor here when I was an, a graduate student. Then he went away. But he was a brand-new assistant professor, so he was 27 or 28 years old. And I was, you know, 22 years old. So it's not that big of a difference. Not like the difference between myself and Jim Buchanan was in his 60s, right? And mm-hmm. I'm in my 20s. So Don was someone that was like us, but we wanted to be like him. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, you know, helping him, you know, move boxes into his apartment and things <laughs> like that, right? Same thing with Selgin. They were young and they, you know, they were getting their careers going. And then you develop these relationships with people and you just follow them throughout your career so it's nothing like like weird it's just the nature of the kind of things that you two will run into you know you'll see each other you know 30 years from now and you'll be like hey what have you been up to and if you both decide to go into economics you'll see each other a lot more than you know just 30 years from now mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. unfortunately dominic is maybe going to go more of the policy <laughs> route where I'll, I'll stick around here in the stuffy old you know libraries and yeah, stuff yeah. like that yeah uh. I don't know about unfortunately. Uh, for, I think it's fortunate both both for both for my sanity and the sanity of others around me. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so um, as far as you know, asking people what they're reading, asking people uh, what what what's interesting to them, uh, it's no secret that Hayek is one of your major influences. And uh, how big of a figure was he among the graduate students? I know he visited George Mason a couple yeah. times, right? Yeah, so, uh, but Dan Dan Klein interacted with him more than I did. He never came when I was here. Oh, really? I missed him, but Dan and Tyler had met him uh, at various things. People like uh, uh, Don Boudreau and George Selgin, they actually, and, and Don Lavoie, they actually spent like summers with him out in California uh, before the Institute for Humane Studies moved to George Mason. It had its offices out there, and Hayek spent a couple summers out there with him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Hayek was obviously a looming figure um, as a, uh, a method. He was alive still when I was in graduate school, but he was old, right? And uh, at the end of graduate school is when The Fatal Conceit is published. So he uh, – before that – and then he dies in 92. Um, but uh, I started graduate school in 84, and in the summer of 84, he presented a draft of The Fatal Conceit. And several of the professors here were at that conference, and so that book was being talked about during when I was in graduate school. Hayek had some interesting ideas that some of us thought we wanted to do to develop our science of economics. Um, one of them was ways to go beyond equilibrium modeling, which was a major topic at my time when I was in graduate school. And he had this idea 
of developing uh, economics not as a uh, set of solution concepts, but as this uh, stream of, of, uh, of activities similar to what takes place in a river. And so how do you model that kind of fluidity where you have order, but yet at the same time turbulence? Mm. And so that kind of question, and then what are the welfare economics of that? Uh, where this, this goes back to what I was talking to you in the last episode about, like, we rarely talked about the policies, let's say, of Hayek uh, with respect to inflation or, or things like I mean, obviously, we understood what his monetary theory was. We kind of believed in the, you know, what the boom and bust cycle and the way Hayek explained it. But the graduate students at the time were much more interested in like Hayek's capital theory. Mm-hmm. And could you take his capital theory, which was more or less built on a neoclassical equilibrium model, and could you fit it with this newer model that he was uh, anticipating being, which is this, you know, stream of equa- uh, of, uh, of services, flows and services and goods and services that are in this like stream like idea. And could you somehow and would you get the same thing? So what did it mean to have a world which was constantly in flux, but yet still orderly? And then what does it mean when you have shocks to it? And does that generate this boom-bust cycle and, and that kind of stuff? And so these were all methodological questions. Hayek raises a lot of deep philosophical questions about how do I study economics? What's the status of subjectivism? What's, the, what's mythological individualism? Uh, is it this atomistic individualism that you see in the neoclassical models or is it something different? And so this is the Hayek that excited our minds, mm-hmm. not the Hayek that – uh, necessarily influenced uh, political actors like Reagan or Thatcher. Um, obviously, the fact that Hayek was viewed as a coffee table book for people like Thatcher and Reagan meant that his name was being bounced around a lot. And so, therefore, that meant the fact that you were interested in him meant that it was okay to be mm-hmm. interested. It was, it's kind of like a, uh, a, uh, a, like a, a punk band that all of a sudden now becomes popular, right? So okay. yeah, you're like, you know, I like the Sex Pistols, right? And then all of a sudden they become like the be- the band everyone talks about. And you're like, oh, okay, so you like the Sex Pistols too. It's okay. You were doing Hayek before it was cool. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and so a lot of students were really excited about that. There was not an internet. I don't mean this like, you know, oh, like I was born before there was salt or whatever, but there wasn't the internet. So like used books is how you got like readings besides the library. But then there started being reprints, right? So these, like there was these August Kelly, which is a publishing house in New York, and they would do these reprints. And so we would be so anxious to get a hold of the August Kelly reprints because of these books. They were just facsimile, you know, they would Xerox them literally and then fold them and then put them inside these because they were beyond the copyright thing on them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we would get these these original books and they had all of Hayek's original books, but then not only his, but like the Swedish school. And so we were then studying because we read the footnotes where we were scholars. Right. So or we were training to be scholars and weren't scholars, but we were training to be scholars, which meant that. And Lavoie really stressed this. So he taught me how to read. It sounds weird, right? But like when I was an undergraduate, I was reading all those things I told you about that Senholtz had us do, you know, Veblen, Marx, and, and Keynes, but then also Galbraith. I was reading them, but I was reading them with an eye to indict them, right? That's a different type of reading. Mm-hmm. So it was like I knew what the right answer was, and I was reading them. So I read the pages. I turned the pages. I know the words, but I was looking for the points to, like, do this. Lavoie didn't want any of that. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what you're doing. You're reading to understand. You're reading to like, and so he made us read Foucault. And Foucault has this wonderful line in Power Knowledge, which is that you don't try to uh, read Marx to indict him for the gulag. Okay. And you don't read Marx to excuse him 
for the gulag. What you do is you read Marx to try to tease out what in his writings could give rise to the gulag. Now you've understood them. And so that what we, what we wanted to do is we wanted to flip that to explain Mises and Hayek and Kirzner and Lachman and Menger and Bambavrik and Wieser and all these other characters, right? And so you would read a book and then you would read all the footnotes in the book and then you would want to read all the footnotes within the footnotes. And so it was fascinating and, and Lavoie really demanded that of you as a student. And so there was a kind of a high barrier to conversation with him, but you prided yourself on the ability to have that conversation with them. And so that was, that goes back to my issue about transformative. And I, I think a lot of people misunderstand this about GMU because they think it's about like, you know, whether or not you support the minimum wage or something like that, or, and that wasn't at all. And in fact, when, um, in the eighties, uh, there was a study going on by, um, uh, David Colander and Ario Klammer, and they ended up by being in a book called The Making of an Economist. Um, but they, they originally did research on the making of economists, and what they did was they went to elite schools, and they tried to find out from economists what's it like becoming an economist. And what they found is that in the elite schools, the students went in with three ideas, all of which they were disabused of by their professors. So the three ideas was you had a great undergraduate teacher, that got you excited about economics. The first thing you learn in grad school is teaching is for those who can't do research. So you don't want to be a teacher, right? You're learning to do research. The second thing was is that you got excited because you learned economics and it had public policy applications. So you go to graduate school and then they tell you policies for the people that are weak-minded. You know, they don't know how to actually do serious work, right? Or you got interested in economics because you read the great classics. You read Adam Smith. You read Karl Marx. You want to be this big, you know, sweeping political th economist, right? The great, the great books kind of idea. And you go to grad school and the history of thought, you know, that's dead end. Why are you doing that? And so the three reasons why you go to graduate school, you get disabused of. And so then there was this great disillusionment among graduate students, which is that they were learning how to do graduate school and they were learning how to be acculturated into the economics profession, but they were disillusioned with the economics profession even before they got out okay and this is what they find in the book and then there was a big uh you know movement to reform graduate education in economics and there was ann kruger uh headed up a commission they published a big study in in the journal of economic literature about how we can improve economic education here's one of the things that's interesting in doing that book colander and Klammer also visited gmu and the New School for Social Research, and UMass Amherst, those three schools. And what they reported, it was at all three of those schools that the students were the opposite of the students at the elite schools. That is, the students couldn't stop talking about how great the place was. Uh, they were so excited. They were so excited about the discipline. They were so optimistic about the future of economics. And they, you know, they, they made fun. They constantly, you know, they treated their ideas, uh, you know, like objects of both great passion, but also things that they could be self-effacing about, you know, and, 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 and constant contestation with each other and they reported this which is the opposite of what the kids at the other schools were just wrote memorizing and like i hate this this is boring but i need to do it to get a job versus us which is like job i never even thought about a job i just want to talk about ideas you know like that and and so there was something about that and i think that's what people don't understand that's one of the things that when you were talking about how Don Lavoie taught you how to read, it reminded me of something that I've heard you say a lot about Hayek, that he was a lifelong learner. And so 
Hayek had certain ideas when he was younger, but as he grew up, he was always open and always willing to learn new things. Yeah. And this is this is what I feel is one of the big attitudes at George Mason. I'm, I'm always hearing people say, okay, well, we have this, we have these ideas, but we don't exactly know where they're going next. So we're a little bit dedicated to them, but we're open-minded enough to, to admit when we're wrong. Yeah, so I, I like the way to put about Buchanan is that he was dogged, but never dogmatic. Um, and so he would pursue a research question till its end. But the thing about Buchanan, as well as Tulloch, um, and as well as Vernon Smith, so we're talking about the elite of the elite, is that, uh, one, they were amazingly generous to graduate students, like unbelievably so. And the second thing was the generosity wasn't just, oh, you know, let me pat you on the head. You're like, they would walk in the room and say, let's try to figure this out together. So they didn't presume they had the answer. As Vernon always likes to say, uh, you know, if I knew the answer, they wouldn't call it research. Right. And so let's try to figure this out. And so Vernon was an amazing. I met Vernon when I was a graduate student back in the 80s. Um, and then, you know, later on, I had the great privilege of him becoming a, a colleague and I consider him a friend. And uh, what was fascinating is you, you sit down with Vernon to have lunch with him and you're more likely to talk about anthropology and the latest articles in uh, science and whatnot than you are to talk about economics. It, it's amazing. With Buchanan, it wasn't anthropology. It was philosophy and different issues going on in science. So he was really fascinated about visions of science and also literature. So as an undergraduate, Buchanan was an econ major, a math major, and a literature major. He triple majored. And his mom uh, got him, gave him a passion in English literature. And so he would always be talking to you about books like, you know, weird things and like, you know, like existentialist books, you know, like Camus and stuff. And you'd be like, you know, talking to him about public choice. And the next thing you know, he's asking you about like Camus or something. And so you're like, wow, you know, this is interesting. So it was early on in my graduate career um, that I knew that I had to catch up. Uh, in the episode where you're, you're asking me about undergraduate school, I told you that I enjoyed undergraduate school tremendously. And, and uh, so I didn't really like devote myself full time to education when I was in graduate school. I was doing other things. But when I came to graduate school, I realized early on I needed to do some catch up. So I went over to Annapolis to St. John's College and talked to the the uh, uh, I guess it was the admissions officer or whatever, and they produce a little booklet with their suggested readings that they have, and he gave that to me, and I came home, and I tried to, like, fill in my gaps in my education by following the St. John's College approach. And so I guess that this is something that I would like uh, the students and others to realize about what still exists in our department. We're a book culture, so people write books, they read books constantly. They talk about books. Um, uh, we're reading philosophy, politics, economics, psychology, history. Uh, we read outside of those things. We just think economics uh, can be the, the organizational framer of a lot of these things. Um, but we don't have such a tight view of economics that it closes out all the other questions. Um, but we're very interdisciplinary as a group. Um, and we actually are, you know, uh, really into uh, look at someone like Tyler and, and look at the guests that he's had on conversations with Tyler mm -hmm. and then look at like the ability of him to have conversations with these people. Right. It's it's amazing. Like he has Margaret Atwood 
on and he's able to have a conversation with her and then he has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on <laughs> and he's able to have conversations with him and you know it's, so it's 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 he's not just having on there like he has had on Jeff Sachs mm-hmm. and have a conversation with him or Larry Summers you know so Tyler's been able to have you know elite economists like he just did the interview with the recent Nobel Prize winners you know and does that but he's also had people that are elite figures in literature and and athletics and 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 all these things so he's just you know that reflects certain values that our department has which i would love to have other people realize that that's what we're about more Mm. than anything else is that culture yeah i know a lot of times one of the things that can get in the way of people experiencing that about about george mason uh, economics is they have a perception of um uh, an undue ideological bias among among professors here and um what what do you think uh do you think do you think they have a point, or do you think that it's based on uh, not not knowing what's going on? I think largely it's it's based on people not knowing what's going on. Um, I do think that there is a um, a certain like set of of uh, shared uh, values that people have here that allow us again, like I mentioned in the earlier days, where you had enough diversity but enough shared that you had something that you could actually interact with each other on the diversity. But just think about like so. Here's one of the things that's like uh, this is a sensitive subject, but mm-hmm. it's actually something I think that's important to understand. The vast majority of the economists in our department that are the squeaky wheels that people hear about, uh, you know, or, or point to, they don't teach undergraduates. So they teach graduate students, and the vast majority of their work as teaching of undergrad of, of graduate students rather than undergraduate students is of a methodological and analytical nature. So just think about at our economics department, okay, you can specialize as a graduate student for your, uh, f- uh, you know, specialization as an economist, teacher, and researcher, not just in a specific field like uh, uh, industrial organization or international trade or public finance. But what you can do is you can also specialize in various approaches. So you can be an economic historian in which, you know, you work in that field with my colleagues John Nye and, and Mark Koyama and Noel Johnson. Or you can be an experimental economist. You can work with Dan Hauser and Cesar Martinelli um, and the group over in ISIS or whatever. Um, and then you can also do uh, public choice economics. And you can work with the people in Carroll Hall. Or you can do Austrian economics. You can work with the people in the Hayek program. Or what's more interesting is that you can mix and match. All of those things become permutations. So you can end up by doing Austrian experimental economics. That never happened before, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, you could do experimental public choice. That happened before, but not prevalent, right? Mm-hmm. But then has. And then the other thing is that we still have all our great colleagues over in the law school. And we interact with the people in the law school and the school of public policy. We have relationships with them uh, very close. Um, and we do a lot of different things with them. And they mix and match the permutations again. And so as a result, the students here can do they, – they talk about uh, what a scientific – program should be mm-hmm. not economics as just public intellectualism right mm-hmm. or popular economics so you think about like paul krugman nowadays he never debates methodology yeah. he never debates analytics all he debates is given his methodology given his analytics is policy positions mm-hmm. okay at gmu 
It's the opposite. You, so he, he, what's taken for given by a Paul Krugman is the methodology and the analytical tools you use. And what isn't taken for given is the policy. But he thinks that because people derive different policies from him, he said this in the New York Times. He says, well, there's knaves, fools, and me, right? Yeah. So he thinks people make errors and therefore they're, they're, they're you know, uh, fools. Or they don't make the error, but they consciously lie about it, which makes them a knave, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we don't have any knave fools. Yeah. Because we don't know. So we, we have some shared notion of policy, but – you know, talk about it very much. You can go and look. It's not in our, you know, that all that much. I mean, sometimes it is, especially in blogs, maybe here and there, but mm-hmm. not in our work, right? Yeah. And so instead, what are we debating in our work? We're debating, you know, the methodology of the social sciences. We're debating what analytical tools people should use, how you approach this kind of question. And we're trying to write in the journals. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get, you know, citation impact and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it changes. And so, you know, I think that someone looking in, might tell a story about us, which we, in fact, would never recognize about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of like, have you ever spent a day here? Have you yeah. ever talked to any of us? And it turns out, no, <laughs> they haven't. <laughs> and, and, but, well, you know, yeah. So I don't know if that's a good answer or not. But I think that I would love to talk more with people on campus and, and, and have conversations with them. And, you know, when I argue that socialism Marcus was in my class, right? So when I argue that socialism has has difficulty, I do teach an undergraduate class in the summer. It's in the summer term, and it's a co-taught with a graduate student to help them prepare to teach in the fall mm-hmm. when they teach full-time by themselves. But I supervise it, and I give lectures in it, and I do a lot of the things there. And when I go in there and I talk about the problems of socialism, which is my historical commitment of as a researcher, mm-hmm. that was what my background the was. Soviet so, so, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, Sovietology. I was a fellow at the Academy of Sciences in Moscow and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And uh, when I teach that, I don't think I'm making an ideological point. Now, you might say that I'm delusional, but I don't because I take or I try to present the socialist argument on its own terms and take that as given, those goals, and then try to assess whether or not the means chosen, so social, can socialist means achieve socialist aspirations and the sad reality for a lot of people is that cold logic and empirical investigation shows that it can't Mm -hmm. so what happens is either you have to change the means which means that you give up on socialism or you have to change the ends and just call it socialism so if you run around you call something socialist that's not socialist and you call like you know something that's socialist means but it's really like not it's private property and and blah 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 with just some you know taxation on it or regulation you know that's totally different story but when i sit there and i walk through the logic and we read marx and then we read the implementations of these kind of ideas and then we study their consequences that is a positive political economy of the program of socialism Someone outside of economics that doesn't understand the logic of economics may look at that and say, oh, you must be ideological because you're not, you know, liking socialism. But that's an error, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's not ideology. It's that's an analytical error on the point of the critic. But on the other hand, if I like was blind to evidence and so if instead I was not just dog it, but dogmatic, then it would be right for people to come in and criticize me. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you look at our colleagues, we are very dogged. We, we are, you know, we bite a bone and we do not give up that bone very easily on a lot of things, especially methodological issues and analytical issues, and we disagree with each other. But what we aren't is dogmatic. 
We're always appealing to reason and to evidence, and we debate over those different things. So this is part of the reason why the methodological arguments are so important over things like, is that econometric evidence determinant of, of like, you know, the, resolving this debate, or does it have its own problems? And so, you, you know, the debates that take place in our seminars are heated debates over these kind of issues, not heated debates over, and we never, ever talk about politics. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like who's, in, who's winning this election or that election or anything like that, just not part of our thing. In fact, that's our shared common ground, which most of us kind of consider that to be like, <laughs> you know, like so, you know, we don't, we don't want to be involved in it. Uh-huh. I mean, Brian Kaplan, it's funny, I made a comment the other day, and I, I probably, I apologize for it as soon as I said it, but I said, I hate... 2020 because it's now all the political campaign again and i said i want to be in brian kaplan's bubble you know like brian kaplan talks about being in this bubble i said i want to be in brian kaplan's bubble just not with brian kaplan i said said, oh no no that's not true i I love my colleague which is true i love him but it's like i i wish that we could have a bubble where we didn't have to talk about all this politics stuff and instead could only talk about the rules of the game and then the strategies the players are going to play and all this stuff I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned miscommunication because Dominic and I have been in Dr. Klein's classes. We've learned theory and moral sentiments. And one big thing in theory and moral sentiments is that um, a lot of the way that we frame our minds and frame our um, the, the way that we interact with other people is the ability to sympathize and the ability to communicate. And Smith talks actually about um, having like antipathy, not being able to relate with one another, is actually like a source of physical pain sometimes. And sometimes I, I feel this where I, I see someone, someone uh, criticizing the George Mason Department and I go, no, you haven't actually been here. You haven't actually uh, been able to communicate with us. So well, what kind of advice would you give to someone like me who is feeling physical pain over a miscommunication? How, how should we uh, go out and interact with the people? Do we just... It's it's not as simple as just going and shoving Hayek in their face, no, which no, I've no. tried. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but it's it, 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 it. What do we do? Do we do we invite people in? Do we do we just say let's let's go meet and talk about things? I mean, it's a it, it you know obviously all these things vary on the intensity of the view that the other person holds. Sometimes people don't want to talk to you. So you know, there's a book written a few years ago, and the author of that book had a particular. Uh, axe to grind and in her writing of that book um, she is on a campus that had people that were co-authors and and uh, major people that were experts in the field that she was writing in and she never even talked to them never even sought them out so she lacked fundamental curiosity Um, I think scholarship is about fundamental curiosity and so the number one thing is if you can show to other people that are less sympathetic to you how curious you are and how these ideas unlocked your curiosity not that they solved the puzzles you had but that they actually gave rise to you asking new questions that you never even thought about before I think that's infectious and that will actually attract people to like wanting well man Marcus you're really into this like I mean, I need to figure this out. Like, why are you so into this? What's so cool about that, right? Whereas if you had an answer for every question that they had, they would say, what, what are you drinking? The Kool-Aid? You know, what's wrong with you, right? And so it's all about asking questions. And you can ask different kinds of questions when you think about things from this, you know, perspective that I think that we teach here. Um, And I think that the number one thing about our program is trying to unleash that curiosity in people, get them to think about puzzles at a fundamental level about the nature of politics, not electoral politics, but the structure of politics. You know, basically these questions about predation and, and whatnot to think about the 
entrepreneurial solutions to market difficulties. So markets fail all the time, right? Like look out the window. There's all kinds of problems. There's injustice. There's this and what. What's the answer to it? Right. So is the answer to have a monocentric response to it or is it to unleash the creative and cleverness of all the individuals within the society to, to solve the problem? This is, you know, Julian Simon, the great economist, referred to it as the ultimate resource is the human imagination. And so large part of what we're about is trying to cultivate those institutional environments, which unleash that creative spirit of individuals. My my favorite chapter, you asked me about Hayek. Uh, perhaps my favorite chapter in all of Hayek's writings is a chapter from the Constitution of Liberty, and it's called The Creative Powers of the Free C- Civilization. I think that's amazing, that, that chapter. Um, and I think it's just full of questions that we're now forced to ask about accidents and fortune and whatnot that, you know, serendipity, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things, like the Post-it note. You know, think about, like, stories that you know about, like, what great entrepreneurial innovations, like the Post-it note. So the Post-it note came about not because someone thought, oh, how can I, you know, create notes? Is because a guy was in a choir, and they needed to, like, keep the, the uh, space on, uh, you know, where they had to go to in the, in the choir book. And at the same time, they didn't want to ruin the choir book, right? So if you, you know, put some things in, so they had to come up with the, the glue, that would stick but not destroy the page, mm-hmm. all right? And then they came up with this, you know, 3M or whatever did it. And, you know, and, and that all came out of, like, a problem-solving approach. And so to me, this is like, wow, people came up with that. Like, yeah. you know, and, and so I don't think of uh, this stuff here. I mean, think about this. I mean, we're able to have conversations and whatnot that people will be able to, you know, where did that come from, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't come from, like, some kind of, you know, central planner saying, from now on, we'll talk into a box and it will, like, have <laughs> sound going out. It had all little puts and parts of that over time, accidents that happened, experimentation, all these things like that. And what do we, that's what we're trying to study. Mm-hmm. And that's creative. And I think if we can do that and unleash our curiosity about the creativity of mankind, Man, that like other people will want to do that too. So mm-hmm. that's that would be my idea. The second thing I would say is, is sincerity, is to be sincere. I think a lot of people nowadays. This isn't maybe me being too cynical. So you guys can correct me. You're young and exciting. Remember, I said I was romantic about education. But I think a lot of people deal with issues that are serious injustices of the world, but they're they're not really thinking hard about the injustice. And they signal that they care about the injustice rather than thinking hard about it. And I think people are smart enough to pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And so they recognize or they sniff out insincerity, right? So if all you're about is virtue signaling on social media, but you actually don't live it and think it and, and work at it, people will assess this out. But if you're actually someone who really genuinely cares, like, you know, and you recognize this, for example, you guys read Adam Smith a lot. Adam Smith deeply cared about the least advantage in society. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not like he, right? Remember, you know, and again, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's only in the mind of the, of the philosopher, that, or I mean, in the mind of the philosopher that sees the difference between him and the street porter, right? Or mm-hmm. And, and uh, so it, it, he deeply cared about the rising, you know, the concern of that. I think readers that now read the T, TMS see that. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, okay, you read that in there. Now square it with what's in The Wealth of Nations Mm -hmm. because they're not different authors. Mm -hmm. They're the same author, and he's making the same argument. It's just you didn't understand it because you didn't have access to what he's doing underlying it in TMS. And so I think if they they see that, they start understanding what this vision that he and Hume and other great liberal thinkers 
uh, in the 18th century had, right? mm-hmm. and then you go from there. Yeah, and that leads that leads very well into what I wanted to ask you about next. I mentioned in, in the introduction on the last episode that uh, you don't do mainstream economics, you do mainline economics. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, talking about Smith and Hume and, and the, those Scottish guys and, and coming up through <laughs> Hayek, um, what – what is the what is the mainline economics? Why is it different than mainstream? And uh, can you just kind of give us a brief rundown on that? It's even it gets even more messy because sometimes the mainstream is the mainline. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, so that phraseology, mainline economics, uh, actually comes from Kenneth Boulding. Okay, and it's in that essay that I mentioned in the earlier episode on after Samuelson, who needs Smith, uh-huh. and. Uh, Samuelson, I mean, uh, excuse me, Bolden, you have to remember, is, is putting forth what's known as a contra-Whig theory of intellectual history. So a Whig theory of intellectual history is history is written by the victors. Mm-hmm. So that would be like Samuelson, who was the victor, then declaring that all that is good in the ancients is embodied in the modern, in me. And if you're a contra-Whig, there's things in the ancients that are not being absorbed that could actually improve the conversation if they were absorbed. So what Bolding uses the kind of idea, what he calls the extended present, that the ideas in the past have an extended present because they reach out and still influence our conversation today. All right, so that, that, that just is background. So what I argue is that when you boil down the essence of what Adam Smith was getting us to think about, so you think about passages like his discussion of the common woolen coat in the beginning, um, or let alone the butcher, the baker, and the brewer, and, and that's what, right? How does he put the idea, right? Uh, we are constantly in need of the cooperation of a great multitude, but scarce in our lifetime that we have but to make a few friends. Mm-hmm. So as a result, we require for our very survival our ability to cooperate in anonymity, right, with other people. So how do we do that? We, well, we do that by relying on institutions which marshal their self-interest. All right. And so that's really the idea. So what does it mean? Marshal their self-interest Because remember, Adam Smith doesn't say individuals pursuing their self-interest um, in un, any conceivable circumstance leads to desirable outcomes. In fact, some of his great examples are where people are pursuing their self-interest and lead to very bad outcomes. For example, having to do with uh, the professors in Oxford versus the professors in Glasgow. Right. So. Just very quick here, the professors in, 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 uh, in uh, Oxford were paid by an endowment. And the professors in Glasgow were uh, paid by student fees. So Smith wanted the professors in Glasgow, to, uh, he wanted the uh, f- uh, students to have the student fees because professors were more attuna- attentive to the students, whereas in Oxford they were bored, you know, and they were boring, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so therefore education wasn't very good. He's attacking the education in Oxford, not because he's saying the professors were bad people, but pers- because they faced bad incentives mm-hmm. is how we would say it today. All right, so mainline economics starts with the idea that you have an animating actor, and then you throw them into an institutional filter, and then that explains the variation in the outcomes that we see, the equilibrating processes. And so we derive the invisible hand from the rational choice postulate via institutions. So all of our explanatory focus is on the institutions, right? Now, that's the mainline economics mm-hmm. and if you look at all the mainline people smith hume uh uh you know bastiat uh uh say um 
you know, I mentioned Mill before Mill would be thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the 20th century, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, you have Menger, you got Mises and Hayek, but you also have Frank Knight. You got then James Buchanan, uh, Douglas North, Ronald Coase, uh, Vernon Smith, right? Look at Vernon Smith's Nobel Prize address. What you'll notice is that in each and every one of them, they have the argumentative structure of the logic of choice. They have the equilibrium propositions coming, but they explain it via the institutional environment within which people behave. And different institutional environments will produce either suboptimal or optimal equilibrium paths. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the main line of economics. So mainstream economics at different times, so for example, under Keynesianism, when it became mainstream, it, it, it argued against two things. One of them was, one, against rationality. So if you go and look at even an essay by Keynes called The End of Laissez-Faire, which was published in 1926, he's going to try to knock out the rationality uh, hypothesis, and he's also going to argue that prices don't serve this function. So you don't have the institutions of property prices and profit and loss, and you knock that out. And then he just wants to study aggregates. So at that point, mainstream economics deviated significantly from the teachings of Adam Smith, the mainline economics. On the other hand, every time that the mainstream deviates significantly from the mainline, schools of thought rise up to try to pull the mainstream back to the mainline. So what is, you know, uh, like law and economics, but to try to get economists to once again study the framework Mm-hmm. Right within which the rules of the game that people play in the games. What is new institutional economics? What is Austrian economics? He's explained the exchange process. Same right? thing with the Ostroms, right? Yeah, same yeah. thing. And so there, there are all these schools of thought rise up to try to pull. This is my narrative, right? Try to pull whenever the mainstream deviates significantly from the main line, they try to pull it back. And if they're successful, then all of a sudden schools of thought start to die out for relatively small periods. And eh, what's the big difference between this or that? And then what happens is it deviates again, and then the schools rise again. And I think that's, you know, part of the 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 one way you think about the rise and decline of institutions and in economics or these kind of questions. I guess um, one other changing topics a little bit. Um, a lot of students at GMU, you mentioned it being a commuter school, and it still is largely a commuter school. Something I, d- I just recently graduated, but a lot of students end up feeling kind of a little bit alienated from the culture, or they don't, they just feel like they're coming here to uh, you know get a degree and then they're going to leave, but they don't really feel connected to the university. You know, the part of this might have to do with it being a new university and a commuter school, mm-hmm. of course, and things like that. And like at the homecoming game this weekend. Uh, the, the, only a few people were standing at the beginning, and I know you're a big fan of college basketball. You were there and all. <laughs> and the, the um, so Dominic and I are lucky enough to be uh, econ majors, and we we were a part of this intellectual community, and and we're uh, that's we're, we're both out of state students. That's the reason that we came to George Mason. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of econ students we've noticed are out of state because they come here because of the department, you know. And so how can uh, GMU students, or at least econ students, see the econ department as like a part of the identity of what makes George Mason a great school. Well, we have lots of activities. So we have a week, we have weekly seminars at the Public Choice um, Center. Those are on Wednesday. That uh, I have, I host a seminar every Thursday um, in our building, and uh, people in Arlington um, at the the the, uh, the um, uh, Interdisciplinary Center for Economic Science, they also host a seminar every Friday. Um, so there's lots of activities. Uh, there's, at, especially with the, the group in Arlington, they're constantly looking for students to be 
uh, in their lab experiments. So you should be looking to sign up for those. They run lab experiments out here in Fairfax and in Arlington. Um, and you can even get paid uh, for that. Uh, there's uh, the Joseph Schumpeter Fellowship, which is for uh, undergraduates here that, that we run out of the program. And I recommend students to apply for that. Uh, I think it's useful. That's a reading group kind of setup and Socratic seminars and I think free pizza sometimes. So, you know, that's good uh, for you to do that. There's essay contests that we uh, sponsor, and I encourage students to submit for the essay contest um, because that way they get to know their professors. And while it's true that I said that our professors oftentimes don't teach many undergraduates programs, when they do, try to suss them out and find them. But also the graduate students here, uh, that are teaching a lot of the undergraduates love economics. Mm -hmm. And so they can be tremendous resources. And I would go and see them. I think I would encourage students to go to office hours of professors um, to try to look up the professors at the university and read their blogs and read and listen to their podcasts, not to advertise for this one, but, uh, you know, uh, to do that. Um, and uh, I think they would find it, you know, very enlightening, you know, uh, and uh, I think that they they should rally. I think this community should rally around Coach Polson. Uh, I, I think that he's uh, done a tremendous job of putting on the floor a team that hustles every game and plays to think. And I think he's just been hit with amazingly bad luck. Last year, his star player as a senior went out with a broken foot. And this year, his best player, in fact, one of the top five players maybe in the A-10 is out for the season in Justin Kyer. Mm -hmm. and, and he's a tremendous leader. And you just can't recover from that. And so even when he was hurt to begin the season and was coming back and they were 11 and one, if you look, he's the reason why they won the tournament and, you know, the tournament game, because mm -hmm. he came in even after being injured and like didn't miss a shot. He's amazing. And he's a leader and everything like that. And you lose that and it's really hard to do it. And I just hope that the community would get behind it. Um, and we'd get kind of the same kind of magic that we had when Laranago was a coach. Mm -hmm. And I do want to tell a story, economic story about Laranago. Yeah, go right ahead. So when Laranago uh, began as the coach, and I moved here, uh, there's other stories about this because I had I had some connections because of my own past and, and interactions with uh, people on Laranago's you know staff and whatnot. But I go to the first game, and uh, that's in the Patriot Center, and my. One of my high school teammates is coaching the opposing team. Opposing team is is uh, Fairfield College in uh, or university in Connecticut, and I go to the game. And there's this is the the second year I think maybe that Larry Negus coaching. Maybe the first year he's coaching. So the, he hasn't started winning yet. So you know if you go there, you see all the banners. He won all the time. So then the audience was got much you know. This mm -hmm. is the very beginning. So there's very few people. So you could hear, and it's the very beginning of the season. And so you can kind of hear a pin drop in the in the in the gym. And the game starts. I see my friend Jerry Hobby. He, he now coaches at University of Washington, but at the time he's at Fairfield. So we see him before the game and talking to him. And then he goes to do his job. He's coaching, and I'm sitting there listening to the game. And we're in the first period of the game. And all of a sudden, you hear these GMU students start a chant, and they're like 
Connecticut's because ta- the school's from Connecticut. They're like Connecticut's taxes are highs. Virginia taxes are low. <laughs> Go GMU or something like that. And I'm like, am I at the? Where am I at in this place? And it was a group of econ students that went to the game, and I was like busted up because I was like, oh my god, I guess I'm home, you know, like that. But uh, we haven't had that chance since. Uh, and uh, and maybe you can bring it back or something like yeah. that. So them, but there used to be really good chance, and the students would get behind. It. So like one of the main rivalry game part of the issue is that we've lost our rivalry games we have a rivalry game in vcu Mm -hmm. but when they were all in the caa it was all virginia schools and so the rivalries were pretty tight so jmu was a big rivalry game odu was a big rivalry game and then vcu was a big rivalry game and so you could have had a tournament just with those four teams ready to you know fight themselves for virginia dominance Mm -hmm. And so JMU was always funny because they would start a chant and they would say, you know, 66 rocks, 81 sucks, you know, and the students <laughs> would get all, you know, worked up for it or whatever. I, I And so I just think that there's like it's just a new school. It needs that kind of energy and whatnot. I think Coach Polson has done a phenomenal job. Uh, and but I think there's other reasons to rally around the school, right? So we in economics we were able to rally around because we had two Nobel Prize winners, right? Mm-hmm. And so that became a source of pride for any student. You know, you walk around, you're like, hey. I studied with Nobel Prize winners, you know, you know, that makes me just like as good as MIT or Harvard guys. And I think that, you know, I would take great pride if I was an undergraduate and Tyler Cowan, you know, I'd listen to conversations with Tyler and I'd be like, you know, look at him, you know, he's and look at his books, look at what he's doing. He just gave the arrow lecture this year. You know, he's been on the Tanner lecture. I mean, so he's a superstar in academics. Brian Kaplan just published a book that became a New York Times bestseller and a Washington Post bestseller. And it's the first, I think, I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to say it. I think it's the first graphic novel in economics. And if you read it, it's like really, really good. I mean, the economics in it is really well presented and it's done in this amazing way. And there's Brian Kaplan and you're like, oh my God, like he's able to do that. And so these people are really special intellectuals and you can look at them and, you know, we have other people here, you know, my colleague Pete Leeson, you know, published, he was just on uh, the Netflix series um, Explained, you know, talking about his work on pirates and stuff. And so it's amazing. You know, Chris Coyne does all this work on the militarization of police and everything. And he's on C-SPAN and, in, you know, on Washington, D.C. You know, Virgil Store just published a great book on does the market corrupt our morals? And, you know, again, like, you know, just the, the students – there's so many exciting things going on in the economics department that are just people trying to figure stuff out. It's like a very much a, a um, like a Richard Feynman thing, the pleasure of finding things out. They just need to come around and see how we interact and how we talk to one another and the ideas that we do. And you get a chance to do that by the Schumpeter Fellowship and other kinds of seminars. So I, I really encourage the students to just not be so bashful and, you know, seek out the opportunities. When I came here on a tour and the the tour guide went around and asked all of us, oh, what are you guys interested in studying? I said, oh, I'm interested in studying economics. And she said, oh, well, did you know that George Mason has uh, two winners of the Nobel Peace Prize in (laughs) economics? (laughs) That's awesome. I actually think the economics deserves the Peace Prize. Uh, So I think that that's actually a key thing about trade. Uh-huh. And I think that's Adam Smith. We should retrospectively give Adam Smith, uh, you know, the Peace Prize. Yeah, definitely. All right, I just got one one last exit question for you, kind of uh, 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 spoofing on a um, uh, common interview question. But where do you see George Mason economics in two years, in ten years, and in forty years? 
Oh, that's a great question. I mean, we have big challenges ahead of us. I mean, we're constantly trying to retain great faculty and uh, also recruit uh, new faculty and new graduate students. And, um, and so it depends on the activities of the individuals that are here and the work that they do and, um, and doing it. I mean, I think there's no substitute for really good research. Um, and that attracts people because of the research that you're publishing and therefore they find out about it and they come there. And uh, but I think we have a, a tremendous uh, community here. Uh, Tyler Cowan is a leader in our program, along with Dan Hauser. So Tyler's kind of a silent leader. He, he is, leads by example. Uh, Dan is an outstanding researcher. Hauser, he's our department chairman. Um, and uh, so he's a, a, an outstanding researcher in his own right. But he's also been a phenomenal department chairman. And they have created an environment here, you know, Tyler, in terms of his intellectual leadership and, and example that many of us want to follow. And then we have, uh, you know, Dan, who's organizationally and intellectually created this environment for all of us to, to try to be great. And we try to be great. And if we're great, then five years from now, we'll be greater. Mm-hmm. And in 10 years from now, if we build on that, we'll be greater. In 40 years, you know, we'll be greater. I, I, you know, now prognosticating about like the size of George Mason and everything like that, you know, this university is extremely well situated because we're right outside the nation's capital. As much as I want to be in the bubble, you have to recognize that that's an advantage. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the old real estate thing, location, location, location. We live in a global economy. We're in the, in the, in one of the major centers of power in the world. People flock here to come and, you know, with online resources and the university having the resources that a young university has, but at the same time, one that's been amazingly successful. Just think about all that Mason has accomplished in the 50 years, basically, that it's existed. It's unheard of. Mm -hmm. There's no other school that's had two Nobel Prize winners that's been in the final four, that's (laughs) won these, you know, Pulitzers and, you know, Guggenheim and all all these other kind of fellowships. We're an R1 university, so we're an elite university in the world. Our economics department is highly rated in these international rankings and stuff. And, you know, if we just keep doing our job and 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 sticking to our knitting, you know, we're going to be fine. And I think as long as we keep on being curious and uh, creating space for curiosity to, to uh, flourish, that will lead to creative people being involved, and that will attract even more creative people and then who knows, mm-hmm. right? And so it's awesome. I pinch myself every day that I get to work at George Mason with the colleagues that I work with and with the students that I get to work with. And um, I'm hope- I, my expectations are I'll continue to be, you know, pinching myself for years to come. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Becky. I really appreciate your time uh, recording these two episodes with us. And, um, you know, it, it's been really great to interview you. Well, thank you very much to both of you and good luck. Uh, to both of you and your different career paths. And uh, I, I, I do think there's great, you're following in a great uh, set of traditions with the Econ Club because there's been some really high moments in that. Uh, one of our, our students, Leah Palagashvili, uh, ran the Econ Club, and later on she became one of the th- Forbes' 30 under 30 most important intellectuals in America. And uh, I think that there's great opportunities from that experience to grow and do it, and I, I wish you both all the best of luck in your different areas, whether or not it's in scholarship or in, in uh, public policy. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much.
Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available just about anywhere you can find podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan and Indeterminate.